The main theme of Galatians is the gospel. It's all about the gospel. What is the gospel and what are the implications of the gospel for our everyday lives? That's what this book has been about. The gospel is the good news of God's grace towards you. And in Galatians here, the way that the book breaks down, if you're a person who likes outlines, I'll give you one here. The way the book breaks down is that the first two chapters are Paul's explanation, his story of his personal experience with God's grace. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul explains the theological implications of God's grace. And in chapters 5 and 6, Paul talks about the practical implications of God's grace in our everyday lives. So it's important for us to understand that there is really nothing that is more pertinent for us to be talking about than the gospel. There's nothing more relevant, there's nothing more yeah, pertinent that we should be discussing than the gospel. And here's why, because what we've seen as we've studied Galatians is that the gospel is comprehensive. The gospel is comprehensive and what that means is that if you really understand the gospel, if you really get the implications of everything that Jesus' death on the cross means for you, it will change every area of your life. If you begin to really understand what Jesus did for you in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, it will change the way you work. It will change the way that you spend your money. It will change the way that you prioritize. And certainly, it will change your relationships. And today, as we get into chapter 6, that is the focus here in Galatians. How the gospel affects our relationships. How the gospel changes our relationships. Think about that and just ask yourself that question as we get into this. How should the gospel affect our relationships? How should the grace of God towards you make a difference in the way that you treat other people, in the way that you even look at yourself in regard to other people? The gospel message is this, that God sought you out. He reached out to you, he extended a hand of friendship, not because he needed a friend, not because you were very friendly, but simply for your sake. That's the message of grace, that God reached out to you, he extended the hand of friendship because only of his great love for you. The Bible says this in Romans chapter five, it says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What that means is this, that the gospel is the message that God loved us when we were not lovely. And by his love, he reached out to us and by his love, he makes us lovely. And what that means for our relationships is this, that God reached out to us when we were not lovely in order to make us lovely by his love. What that means for us is this, the gospel changes the way that we see ourselves. The gospel changes the way that we see other people because what the gospel does is this, it gives us a new self-image. A new self-image which is not based on comparing ourselves with others, but the gospel gives us a new self-image which is based on who we are in Christ and that changes everything so if you have your Bible please read along with me in Galatians chapter 6 I'll begin in verse 1 brothers if anyone is caught in any transgression you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness but keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted 
Let me ask you this. Let's consider this. What is the church called to be? What role is the church body called to fulfill? There are many things, and I'll give you some examples. For example, the church is to be a refuge for hurting people. You know, this world can be a cruel place. People can be mean. People can be cold. They can be cruel. And the world, uh, the church is intended to be a refuge from that, a place where people can come and, and be loved and be cared for, where they can be listened to, where they can be accepted. I guess I always like to think of it this way. I like to think of the church as a countercultural village within a city. Within any given city, the church, the body of Christ, is a countercultural community. I guess you could say that we live an alternative lifestyle. That's a nice thing you tell your parents. I be, you know, I, I started living an alternative lifestyle, mom and dad. Now I'm a Christian. So, uh, you know, we are a countercultural village within this city. We are a place of refuge from the harshness of the world around us. Furthermore, you could say this, that so the church is called to be a refuge. What else? The church is called to be a school. This is a place where we come and we study the word of God. We become students of it. It's a place where we have teachers who are gifted and skilled in dividing the word of God and making it applicable to people's lives to different ages, right? Different age groups so that they can understand what God is speaking to them and how to live it out. Furthermore, the church is called to be a gymnasium, right? Well, this one actually is a literal gymnasium, but, but the church is called to be a gymnasium in a figurative way too, in that it is a community in which we get together for the purpose of exercising our faith, for working out our salvation. And you know what we do here on Sundays, this is only one aspect of who we are as a church. Throughout the year we go out locally, we even go out globally because we want to put into practice the things that we learn in God's word. We want to put them into practice. We want to live out our faith. We want to walk in the teachings of Jesus. So the church is a gymnasium where we can practice those things. So the church is a refuge. It's a school. It's a gymnasium. Here's another one. It's a restaurant. It's a place where we serve up the milk and the meat of God's word. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which comes forth from the mouth of God. You know, the word of God is food for our souls. It is sustenance which satisfies the hunger in our souls, which feeds us in our inner man that we might have fuel to grow. You know, when a person first comes to the Lord, the, the Bible describes it as the milk of the word. These are the basic, elemental, fundamental truths of Christianity. But after some time, there, there comes a time when, when you become mature and you're ready for the meat of the word. That's the, the teachings of God's word that are a little bit more meaty. They, it's stuff that you have to chew on for a while to digest. The church is also called to be a temple. It's, it's a place where we gather corporately and offer up the sacrifice of praise, giving thanks to his name. The church is also a travel agency. This is a place where we, we help people prepare for their great final journey once this life is over and we make sure people know that their tickets have been paid for in full and finally here's what I want to land on one very important aspect of what the church is and what the church is called to be is it's called to be a hospital the church is called to be a hospital we are a place for the sick and the injured the people who are broken and the people who are messed up to come and find healing if someone's messed up, if someone's uh, sick or, or 
broken or injured, that person belongs in a hospital, right? That's what the church is called to be in a spiritual sense. Now imagine, if, imagine with me, if you would, that you take a field trip to a, uh, to a hospital, right? And you're getting shown around by an administrator at that hospital and, and she's showing you around the facility and she, she tells you, you know, check out our hospital. We are very proud of our hospital. Because as you will notice, in our hospital there are no foul odors whatsoever. There are no stains on the bed sheets. There are never any messes. In fact, we don't even own bedpans at this hospital. And isn't that great? And you'd say, well, well, that's incredible. Wow, it is very clean here. It's, you know, amazing. How do you keep this place so clean? They say, well, it's pretty simple, really. We just have a policy. Sick people are not welcome here because, you know, they bring in germs and stuff. We don't want that. We like to keep things sanitary. We like to keep things sterile. So we don't admit sick people. I mean, if, you know, if people want to come here and, and, you know, stay for a while, they're welcome to as long as they're healthy. Well, that would be ridiculous, right? Because that is the purpose of a hospital is to take care of those who are sick. And the fact is, though, that this is the way that some people view the church, as a gathering place for healthy people. And if you're sick, if you've fallen, if you're messy, then please leave. Or at least stay away for a while until you've gotten better, and then you can come back, because we don't want any foul odors in here. We don't want any stinky situations. We don't want any messes to clean up. But that is not what the Lord has called us to be. He's called us to be a hospital, a place for sick people to come, messes and all, where they can be cared for and nursed back to health. And we should rejoice, actually, when we see God bringing us sick people in our direction. But on the other hand, imagine with me, if you would, that you visit a different hospital. And again, a, an administrator showing you around, and it's a completely different scenario. You go into the hospital, and there are just, uh, you know, bedpans overflowing all over the place. There are dirty needles stacked up. There are, you know, bloody bandages on the floor. The bed sheets are all dirty. There's a terrible smell. And, and you ask, you know, the administrator, well, what is going on here? And she said, you know, we're not really into cleanliness because we just want to help people. We just want to treat wounds. But the thing is this, if you don't care about cleanliness, then you're not really caring for sick people. If you, if you treat someone's wound, but you don't clean it, if you take in sick people, but you don't care about cleanliness, then disease spreads, right? And wounds don't actually get healed if you just put a Band-Aid on them. Interestingly, Paul is using a medical analogy here in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, what we just read. He says, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That word restore in the original Greek text is actually a medical term, which means to mend or to set a broken bone. So we are to be on the lookout for those who have fallen into sin, right? Who have, who have been caught in a trap of transgression. We don't want to write them off or kick them out. No, we want to take them in and mend them up and set that wound. But also, we don't want to just tell them that there's no problem at all, that they're just fine the way they are. We want to help them recover. And in order to do that, we have to clean that wound. We have to set that broken bone in the right place so that they can heal and walk again. You know, relationships are messy. I'm sure you've experienced that in your own lives. Relationships are messy, and the reason is because sin is messy. And people are sinful. It's a reality that we live with 
every day in this world. And as the body of Christ, as, the, as God's church, we want to be a place where people are welcome to be honest about the messy reality of their life. But we also want to be a place where we call sin, sin, right? Where we call people to repent of sin, which means not only just feeling bad about what they've done, but actually turning away and changing. We care about cleanliness. We care about holiness. We don't want disease to spread, but also we want sick people to really get better. And, and again, if you just put a Band-Aid on something, you don't clean the wound, then that person won't fully heal. They won't become healthy. So I got an email this week. Um, a church got an email. And uh, it was asking, the email asked, are gay people welcome at your church? And my answer was, our door is open to all people. Now, does that mean that we affirm homosexual activity? No, it doesn't. But you know what? We also don't affirm promiscuity, and we don't affirm hatred, and we don't even affirm slothfulness. But if people who are caught up in sin want to come into this place and they want to consider the word of God, they want to consider the message of the gospel, and they want to let God speak to them from his word, then yes, those people are welcome in this place. This is a hospital for sick people. But in coming here, any of us, all of us who are here, we don't come here with the goal of just being affirmed, right? We come in here with the goal of being changed, of being healed. The, the church is a hospital. We come in here and we desire to be cleansed by the washing of the water of the word, we want to be challenged in the status quo of how we're living our lives. And we want God as a good doctor to do work in our lives. That we might be healed in the areas of our hearts and the areas of our minds that are sick. So that we can be healed, so we can become healthy people. When I started a church in Eger, uh, you know, when we first started, it was mostly... Uh, all college students. Actually, there was a time when, when I was the only guy and we had like 15 girl college students, right? Um, but then, you know, we got some guys, which I was happy about, and, uh, and we got some people who weren't college students, which was, which was nice. It helped us pay the rent, you know. But uh, there was this thing I used to preach, you know, to those people in Agar a lot. Like, it was my main message was this, that sin makes you weird, but Jesus makes you normal. And that really got to them. They were like, wow, yeah, wow. Like, yeah, I'm going to, I want to get baptized now. It's pretty much, you know what I mean? But uh, I think it works maybe even better in these terms that we're using today. Sin makes you sick, but Jesus makes you healthy. And that's really true, especially as regards relationships. You know, the reason that relationships are sick is because of sin, various forms of sin, right? But the way to see relationships healed is for cleansing to take place where sin is repented of, where forgiveness is offered, where restoration is sought. You see, what's important to remember here as we study Galatians is the context. You can never take this out of the context because the context is what makes this understandable to us. Who is this letter being written to? Paul is writing this letter to a group of Christians who do not have any understanding of the concept of grace. They do not get grace at all. These, these Galatian Christians, we've seen that they were legalistic in their attitude towards God, in their attitude about how God treated them. 
They, believe, they did not understand that everything that they had was only because of the grace of God, the unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor of God towards them. And so Paul writes this letter to them to explain that the heart of the gospel is the message of grace. But here's the thing. Because these guys did not understand God's grace to them, they were not gracious towards each other. But what happens when you come to understand God's grace to you is that it makes you gracious towards others. See, these guys here, they were your typical holier-than-thou type of religious folks. We've all met them. We've seen them, you know, satirized on TV. You know, holier-than-thou religious folks. Everyone is going there trying to put their best face forward and show that they've got it all together. And, and what that does is it creates a church which is not a safe place. Church is not a safe place if you have to put your best face forward all the time and pretend that everything's all right. You can't be open about the messiness of your life, your struggles and your shortcomings because if you do fall, then there's 10 people waiting to kick you while you're down or step up on top of you so that they look that much taller standing on you. So if you do have a problem, you can't be honest about it, right? You have to pretend that everything's okay. You can't let people see the cracks in your life because if they do, then they'll be there to tear you into pieces. You know, backbiting, gossiping. They'll say, you know, did you see what she did? Or him, do you see what he did? I always had a feeling that he wasn't everything that everybody thought he was, you know? I always knew that he wasn't that great. But Paul says, listen, if God's been gracious to you, then be gracious to others. If God loved you when you were messed up, when you were a sinner, when you were lost, then show love to other people who are also caught up in sin. If God reached out to you to pull you out of that pit and set your feet on solid ground, then shouldn't you also reach out to help people get out of their pit that they're caught up in and stand again on solid ground? He says, you who are spiritual, restore people in a spirit of gentleness. What that means is this, that the mature person spiritually, they will not rejoice in another person's failure because that makes them look better, right? They won't rejoice in another person's failure, but they will want to protect that person from shame. They will want to restore them. In Genesis chapter 9, we read about Noah. And, you know, the Bible tells us that Noah was a great man. He was a man who obeyed God. He was a man of faith. And, and he was a man who was used by God in a great way. But here's the interesting part of that story about Noah, right? It starts in chapter 6 of Genesis, and it goes to chapter 9. And the last time we see Noah, he's not looking so good. He gets off the ark, and then he starts cultivating grapes, right? And then he starts getting drunk, Right? And so the last picture we have of Noah is he gets off the ark and then he gets really drunk and he passes out naked. And one of Noah's sons, Ham, he, uh, he sees his dad, you know, drunk and naked and, and he runs over and he tells his brothers and he says, guys, guess what? Dad's drunk. He's passed out. He's naked. Come on, let's check it out. Come on, I want you guys to look. We can put it up on YouTube. We can take pictures. We'll sell them to the tabloids. Oh, look, this, you know, guy is so godly, so righteous. Well, look at him now. Not looking very godly now, is he? But Noah's other two sons, you know what they did? Shem and Japheth, they said, no. 
We will not look upon our father's shamefulness. We don't want to see his sin. You know what? So what they do is that they take this blanket and they stretch it between the two of them and they walked backwards and they covered up their father's shamefulness. They covered up his nakedness to protect him from embarrassment. 1 Peter 4 verse 8, it says that love covers a multitude of sins. And here's the point. Love doesn't draw attention to other people's sins. It walks in backwards and helps to restore. So uh, let's get back to where we started. How does the gospel affect our relationships? The first one which we've seen here is this. The gospel makes you more gracious towards others when you realize the grace of God towards you. The second one here is this. The gospel gives you a humble attitude towards other people a humble attitude towards other people again check out verse one it says if anyone's caught up in any transgression you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness but keep watch over yourself lest you too be tempted you know there's a famous old English saying that says there but by the grace of God go I you know who made that, that a saying famous it was Winston Churchill but he wasn't the first person who who really coined that phrase. The man who coined that phrase was a Christian pastor in England named John Bradford. And this man, John Bradford, he would say this phrase in regard to criminals, in regard to prostitutes and drunks on the streets. You know, people in his church would tell him, can you believe those people out there? They're so immoral. They're terrible. Can you believe what they do? And Pastor John would tell them, if it were not for God's grace, you and I would be right where that person is too. You know that? We are no better than them. There but by the grace of God go I. And that is the attitude that the gospel gives us. That we are no better than those who fail and sin. And that if we are not actively abiding in Christ and staying close to him, then you know what? We have the capacity to do very terrible and regrettable things. Each and every one of us. You know, when you hear that someone's cheated on their spouse, you, you shouldn't say, man, you know, what a horrible, evil, sinful person. I'm so glad that I'm not like that. Rather, you say, there, but by the grace of God, go I. And you pray, God, keep me on your path. Help me to abide in you that I don't make that grievous error like that guy did. I don't want to do that. I don't want to shame my family. I don't want to shame you, God. You know, the Bible says that in our flesh dwells no good thing. No good thing. Apart from God, we all have the capacity to do crazy, wicked, regrettable things. And rather than feeling superior to others when we see them fall, we need to pray all the more that God would keep us from going down the same path. That's the heart of humility, having a proper view of who you are. In verse 3 and 4, it says this, If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, for each one will test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. C.S. Lewis said this about humility. He said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Right? Many people wrongly assume that to be humble means to be like this self-deprecating, down on yourself, you know, like you wear a shirt that says, I'm with loser, and it has like a, 
arrow that points at your face, you know? I'm such a loser. And that's what it means to be humble. I hate myself. I'm good for nothing. I mess everything up. I should just not even get out of bed. But you know what? That's not humility. And you know why? Because it's still all about you. It's still all about you. If you're focused on yourself all the time, either with positive thoughts or with negative thoughts, guess what? You're still focused on yourself. Now, I agree with what C.S. Lewis said, but I would put it a different way. Here's how I would put what humility is. Humility is having a proper view of who you are. And once you've got that, then you can rest from thinking about yourself all the time. So humility is a, a proper view of who you are. And when you've got that, then you can rest from thinking about yourself all the time. You know, only the gospel can give you a proper, balanced view of who you are. And the gospel says this, that you are deeply flawed, but yet you are dearly loved by God. You, the gospel says that you are so desperately sinful that Jesus had to die for you. But it also says that you are so deeply loved that Jesus was glad to die for you. That's the balance of the gospel. It makes you both humble and bold at the same time. Humility is, is neither thinking too much of yourself, that other, everyone else is superior, or that, I'm sorry, that you are superior to everybody else, nor is it thinking too little of yourself, that you are inferior to everybody else. You know, insecure people are always thinking in these terms. They're always thinking in terms of, superiority and inferiority who am I superior to who am I inferior to how can I become superior these kind of terms but humility is having this proper balanced view of yourself and when you have that it frees you up from having to think about yourself all the time having to compare yourself all the time that's why Paul says, essentially in verse 4, he's saying, stop comparing yourself to others and focus on who God called you to be, you personally. And let me tell you this, when we talk about relationships, humility is a game changer when it comes to relationships. If you've ever been around somebody who is not caught up with themselves, you know how incredibly refreshing that is. You know, uh, Nothing kills relationship like pride. And nothing fuels relationship like humility. So again, how does the gospel affect our relationships? Number one, the gospel makes us gracious towards others. Number two, the gospel gives us a humble attitude in regard to others. And number three, the gospel inspires you to serve others practically. The gospel inspires you to serve others practically. Check out verse 2 of chapter 6. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now here's what's interesting. Go down with me to verse 5. and says this. Each person should bear their own load. Each person should bear their own load. So, I mean, that's interesting, right? Because it's almost like a contradiction because the one says, bear each other's burdens, but then the next one says, everybody should bear their own load. How does that work? Uh, in verse two, you know, there, there's no contradiction here. What, what it is is that in these two verses, verse two and verse five, we have T 
two different kinds of burdens being talked about and two different words used in the, in the Greek language here. The, the one in verse 2 speaks of a crushing, overpowering burden. The kind of burden that one cannot handle on their own. The something that you, they can't stand up under. It's just crushing them. Verse 5, though, refers to a backpack that a soldier would have to wear and carry when he was going out on a mission. A backpack, a load. What we call that is responsibility, right? It's nobody else's job to carry that. That's that soldier's load to carry. That's his job. He shouldn't expect anybody else to carry that for him. We call that responsibility. Those are the normal responsibilities of life. Getting a job, paying your bills, going there every day, showing up, going to school if you're a student, doing well, studying, getting good grades. That is your load. You need to carry it. You can't expect others to carry that for you. And that's a really important distinction that we are to bear each other's burdens, but yet each person much must carry their own load. If someone finds themselves, if we find somebody under a crushing burden, the way that we will fulfill the law of Christ is by rallying around that person and helping them to stand and helping them to bear that burden by bearing it with them. And what is the law of Christ? Uh, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 22. He said that the law of Christ is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, part of our fallen human nature is that we are selfish by nature. And you know, we, we, we start out as selfish children, but sometimes people end up being selfish adults. And what's sad is that our, our society even sometimes feeds into that, you know, and we, we in, it encourages it. And we'll hear these like, these quippy little cliches. I don't know if you know these, you know, like, do whatever makes you happy, you know, or do what's good for you, or, you know, the fact is that is really bad advice. I hope none of you follow that advice because here's the thing. If everybody lives for themselves and does whatever makes them happy, well then what if what makes me happy conflicts with what makes you happy? What if what makes me happy, what I do to make myself happy, actually hurts you? Because that happens, right? And that's the thing. What about a marriage in which each partner is primarily concerned with making themselves happy and doing whatever feels good for them, whatever makes them happy? That marriage is doomed for failure. But in the life of Jesus, right, we see a completely different way of living. Rather than love yourself and do whatever makes you happy, Jesus' message, the law of Christ, is love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That's a very radically different message. And essentially, here's the thing. The gospel is the good news of how Jesus set aside what was good for him in order to bear our burden. Romans chapter 15, it says this. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, for his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. To bear one's burden is to imitate Jesus, who bore our burden on the cross, our crushing burden. He didn't just leave us to deal with it on our own, but he bore our burden in our place. 
The gospel inspires us to serve others practically. When we realize what Jesus did for us by bearing our burden on the cross, it inspires us to bear the burdens of others as well. But the other side of the coin is this, that God expects each person to carry their own load. And that's an important biblical model for how to help people. You know, we want to help those who are in need to get out from under a crushing burden that they can't stand or that's just taken them out. But once they're out of it, we want them to walk on their own, carry their own normal, healthy burden of responsibility that every person needs to carry. You know, when I was single and I lived in Hungary, I lived in this very small apartment. Um, I mean, it was like really small. It was probably like, I'm going to say about 350 square feet. We had a little living room and a very small bedroom, like the kind of bedroom where you had to hold your breath, you know, until you sat on the bed type of thing. You know, we had this little kitchen and everything. And uh, so it started out, there were two of us living in this apartment. We paid 150 bucks a month in rent. Well, then there were some guys who we got to know through the church who were, you know, had, they had fallen on hard times. So we took in one guy, then we took in another guy, then we took in another guy, and then we took in another guy until there are six of us living in this very tiny apartment. And I have to tell you, the smell in there was terrible, right? And, uh, and it, I, I didn't even like going home. I would just go sit at the park by myself for a while and then just go home to sleep, you know? It was, it was pretty bad there for a while. Uh, and we had taken these guys in because we were trying to help them bear these crushing burdens that they were under you know the this one guy had just gotten out of rehab another guy his wife had left him we had two other guys who were just unemployed and flat broke and so we had taken these guys in but what happened was this after a month or two it became clear that two of the guys we had taken in uh, you know, they wanted to carry their own load. They just were under a crushing burden, but it also became clear that the other two guys were not interested in carrying their own load. Because, you know, the four of us would get up in the morning, some to find work, some to go to work, and then these other two guys would just hang out at the house all day, and they'd play video games, and they'd eat all the food that we were bringing home. And the worst part is when you come home and the, the, they tell you, you know, like, hey, you know, what is this? We're out of food again, you know? How did that happen? Can you go to the store and pick up some food? Because we're hungry, you know what I mean? And so we, we ended up having to send these two guys away. You say, how, is that a Christian thing to do? Those guys don't have anywhere to go. Well, yes, it is, because they need to learn to carry their own load. At that point, we're no longer helping them. We're just enabling them and holding them back from maturing and living a, a full life and learning healthy responsibility. So again, check out verse 10, and we'll finish with this. Verse 10 says this, So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. You know, there are so many people in this world who need love and support. How do you even know where to start? How do you even know where to begin? Here's what the Bible says. Start with your brothers and sisters in the family of God. Start in the household of faith. It all begins here in the household of faith. These new kinds of relationships that we're talking about. This new culture of relationship which is shaped by the gospel. In which we are gracious to one another because God has been gracious to us. In which we are humble in regard to one another because we realize who we really are. We see ourselves properly and in which we are serving each other practically because 
God has served us practically in Christ. Where do we start with that new culture of relationship? We start here in the family of God. This is the place that it begins. We want to treat all people that way, but we start here because this place is not only a refuge, it's not only a school, it's not only a restaurant and a hospital, but it is also a gymnasium, right? It is a place for us to practice our faith. It is a place for us to work out our salvation and work out our faith practically. And I do pray that our church would be all of those things. And I do pray for us as we, as we leave this place today that the gospel would have a great impact on every area of our lives and especially on our relationships. Amen? Let's stand and pray. We're gonna take communion as we worship for the next few songs and I encourage you to make your way over to the communion table and remember the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, the gospel. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you loved us when we were not lovely. Lord, you reached out to us and stretched out the hand of friendship to us, not because we were friendly, Lord, but because of your great love for us. And Lord, help us to be people who relate to others because of the gospel, who our relationships with others are changed because of what you've done for us, what we've seen in the gospel, Lord. Thank you for your grace towards us. May we be gracious to others. Lord, thank you that you loved us in spite of who we were, Lord. That we are deeply flawed, but we are dearly loved. And we thank you for that, Lord. Help us to have a proper view of who we are. Not to think too highly or too lowly of ourselves, but to see ourselves in your eyes. And Lord, may we serve each other practically. Thank you, Jesus, that you served us. We want to remember these things as we take communion and as we go about our week. In Jesus' name, amen.